Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today we will be discussing an article called Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII by Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood. This article was published by the George Washington University Law Review in 1965 in response to the Civil Rights Act, which had been passed the year before in 1964. And this title asks, quote, the extent to which the Constitution may protect women against discrimination and the interpretation of the sex discrimination provisions of the Equal Employment Opportunity Title of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, end quote. This article was read and the argument later used by a rising star at the ACLU, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and it was used to convince the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause does indeed apply to women. So this is an exciting moment for our history project because the podcast is now entering the civil rights era, and we're going to start to hear from authors who have new and more expansive, more inclusive concepts of women's experiences within patriarchal systems. And this itself is a landmark article. It's written by brilliant and groundbreaking lawyers. And I'm so lucky to have a brilliant lawyer here as my reading partner today to discuss this work. So I'm super excited and want to welcome Rochelle Briscoe. Hi, Rochelle. Hi, Amy. So glad to be here with you. Congratulations on the podcast. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you. Well, let's um, let's begin. We're going to talk a bit about the authors of this document, Polly Murray and Mary Eastwood. And um, it's going to be a bit of a history lesson because we need to talk about also what was going on in the country at the time that led them to write this document. I'll start by taking Mary Eastwood's bio, um, who was one of the authors of Jane Crow and the Law. Uh, Mary Eastwood was born on June 1st, 1930. She was a white woman, a lawyer, and a civil rights advocate. Um, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin Law School in 1955 and then moved to Washington, D.C. In 1960, she joined the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, serving as an attorney advisor and later as an equal opportunity advisor. In 1965, Eastwood and Polly Murray published the landmark article Jane Crow and the Law, Sex Discrimination and Title VII in the George Washington Law Review. That's obviously the, the document that we're going to be discussing today. It's also interesting to note that in 1966, so after the article was published, Mary Eastwood was one of the 28 women who founded the National Organization for Women. So um, these women were inspired to start now, NOW, the National Organization for Women, because although Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, which we're talking about today, although that had been passed, no one was enforcing it. And so that was actually the reason that they started the National Organization for Women was discussions about how nobody was enforcing Title VII. And so this just kind of highlights something that we've talked about on other episodes, too, especially when we were talking about the UN Declaration of Human Rights, about how sometimes the United Nations or even like our own country will make laws or declarations and people just don't follow them. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, too, um, on this episode. But anyway... So at the third National Conference of State Commissions on the Status of Women, 
this group of women wanted to issue a demand that the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission carry out its legal mandate to end sex discrimination in employment because this title had passed. But they were pre- these, this group of women was prohibited from doing that or they just ignored their demands. And so this group of women just was fuming and they gathered in Betty for Dan's hotel room and um, the the like urban legend, but I think it's actually true because it's that's what everybody says happened is that Friedan just wrote on a paper napkin in this hotel room. She wrote the acronym NOW, National Organization for Women. And Eastwood, Mary Eastwood, was part of their first legal committee. She helped to organize a picket of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in protest of their sex segregated help wanted ads, <laughs> which I'm like, what? <laughs> Like even they, the Equal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was, was, you know, issuing these help wanted ads that's like women need not apply to this one. So just the in, the deeply entrenched sexism even in the movement was is just it blows my mind. But anyway, that picket was planned in Mary Eastwood's apartment. So she was kind of right in the thick of things. And um, the the photo that you can find of Mary Eastwood is actually of her picketing. Um, th- that photo was published in the Washington Post the next day. So that's a little bit about Mary Eastwood. We're going to talk more about the other author of this article, Polly Murray. Um, we're going to talk, spend more time on her because she was just really such a fascinating and trailblazing woman. Um, I would really recommend to listeners in 2017, The New Yorker published an article about her by Catherine Schultz. Um, The title is The Many Lives of Polly Murray. And the tagline is, um, she was an architect of the civil rights struggle and the women's movement. Why haven't you heard of her? And we took some of the following bio from that New Yorker article. So I really recommend looking up that article. But Rochelle, will you introduce us to Polly Murray? Oh, yeah. And I'm so excited to cover a bio of this woman who may be an unsung hero, but was a career and cultural role model. Her writings, legacy and life inspired me in countless ways. Um, Talk about the modern hashtag goals. (laughs) Polly Murray was like politics and legal superstar of epic proportion. Uh, Polly Murray was born in Baltimore on November 20th in 1910. Both sides of her family were mixed racial origins with ancestors, including black enslaved people, white enslavers, Native Americans, Irish, and free black people. Murray's parents identified as black. Her father, William Murray, was a school teacher and her mother, Agnes, was a nurse. In 1914, Agnes died of a cerebral hemorrhage when Polly was only three. After then, Polly's father began to have emotional problems as a result of typhoid fever. Relatives then took custody of her siblings, and Polly was sent to Durham, North Carolina, to be raised by her aunts. Eventually, her father was committed to a psychiatric institution, and all throughout Polly's childhood, she had the dream of going to the institution to rescue her father and bring him home. Tragically, her father received no meaningful treatment in the institution and was eventually beaten to death by a white guard. Polly was only 13 years old when he died. She stayed down there in Durham until the age of 16, at which point Polly moved to New York, finish high school and prepare for college. 
Polly Murray had a favorite teacher in school who inspired her to attend Columbia University, but she was turned away because that university didn't admit women. She didn't have funds to attend the partner women's school, Bernard College. So instead, she attended Hunter College, a free city university where she was one of very few students of color. She graduated from Hunter College in 1933 with a Bachelor of Art in English. Polly then applied to the University of North Carolina, but was rejected because of her race. This was still the Jim Crow era, upheld by the Supreme Court case of Plessy v. Ferguson, and all schools and public facilities in the state were segregated by law. Polly Murray contested her rejection, writing to officials ranging from the university leadership to President Roosevelt, then releasing those responses to the media in an attempt to embarrass them into action. Initially, the NAACP was interested in the case, but later declined to represent her in court. Concerns about her sexuality may have played a role in that decision. Polly often wore pants rather than the customary skirts, and she was open about her relationships with women. After her rejection from UNC, Polly Murray became involved in challenging segregation. And in 1941, she started at Howard University Law School. Polly Murray was the only woman in her law school class, and in this environment, she became aware of sexism at the school. On Murray's first day of class, one professor remarked that he didn't know why women went to law school. She was infuriated and developed a feminist critique, which she labeled Jane Crow, alluding to Jim Crow, the system of racial discrimination oppressing African-Americans. In 1942, while still in law school, she joined the Congress of Racial Equality, also known as CORE. That year, Pauli published an article, Negro Youth Dilemma, that challenged segregation in the U.S. military, which continued during the Second World War. She also participated in sit-ins, challenging several Washington, D.C. restaurants with discriminatory seating policies. These activities were ahead of the more widespread sit-ins in the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s. Polly Murray was elected justice of Howard Court of Peers, the highest student position at Howard. And in 1944, she graduated first in her class. Traditionally, men who graduated first in the class were awarded the Julius Rosenwald Fellowship for Graduate Work at Harvard University. But Harvard did not accept women at that time. So Polly Murray was rejected from Harvard, even despite a letter of support from FDR. After law school, Polly did her postgraduate work at Bolt Hall School of Law at Berkeley. And after passing the California Bar Exam in 1945, Murray was hired as the state's first black deputy attorney general. That year, the Council of Negro Women named her its Woman of the Year, and Mademoiselle magazine did the same in 1947. In 1915, she published State's Law on Race and Color. This was an examination and critique of state segregation laws throughout the nation. Pauli drew on psychological and sociological evidence, as well as legal reasoning. An innovative discussion technique 
for which she had previously been criticized by Howard professors. Murray argued for civil rights lawyers to challenge state segregation laws as unconstitutional directly, rather than trying to prove the inequality of the so-called separate but equal facilities. In essence, she argued that the, quote, separate, end quote, part of the clause was unjust, not just that the facilities were unequal. Thurgood Marshall, then NAACP chief counsel and a future Supreme Court justice, called Murray's book, State's Law on Race and Color, the Bible of the Civil Rights Movement. And the NAACP used her approach of drawing on psychological as well as legal studies in its arguments for Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. So Polly Murray's work was instrumental in winning the case that would end segregation. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy appointed Polly to the Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. In a letter to civil rights leader A. Philip Randolph, she criticized the fact that the 1963 March on Washington had no women invited to make any of the major speeches or to be part of its delegation of leaders who went to the White House, among other grievances. She wrote, quote, I have been increasingly perturbed over the blatant disparity between the major role which Negro women have played and are playing in the crucial grassroots levels of our struggle and the minor role of leadership they have been assigned in the national policymaking decisions. It is indefensible to call a national march on Washington and send out a call which contains the names of not a single woman leader. In Murray's speech, Jim Crow and Jane Crow, delivered in Washington, D.C. in 1964, sheds light on the long struggle of African-American women for racial equality and their later fight for equality among the sexes. As she put it, quote, not only have they stood with Negro men in every phase of the battle, but they have also continued to stand when their men were destroyed by it, end quote. These women were unafraid to stand up for what they believed in, refused to back down from the long and tedious battle. Murray continued her praise for Black women when she stated that the Negro struggle was able to progress partly because of the indomitable determination of its women. It was in 1965, the next year when she published her landmark article, co-authored by Mary Eastwood, Jane Crow and the Law, Sex, Discrimination, and Title VII in the George Washington Law Review. The article discussed Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 as it applied to women and drew comparisons between discriminatory laws against women and Jim Crow laws. As we mentioned in the intro, this was Pauli's law review article that was later used by Ruth Bader Ginsburg to convince the Supreme Court that the Equal Protection Clause applies to women as well as men. That article, Jane Crow and the Law, is essential in understanding how patriarchy and white supremacy functioned in the United States in the mid-20th century. Later in 1965, Polly studied at Yale Law School becoming the first African-American ever to receive a Doctor of the Science Law degree from Yale. In 1966, she was a co-founder of the National Organization for Women, 
now, which she hoped could act as an NAACP for women's rights. Then, after her career as a professor, and already in her 60s, Polly left Brandeis to attend seminary with the goal of becoming a priest. She was ordained in 1976, and after three years of study, she became the first African-American woman Episcopal priest and was the first generation of Episcopal women priest. That year, she celebrated her first Eucharist by invitation and preached her first sermon at Chapel of the Cross. That was also the first time a woman celebrated the Eucharist at an Episcopal church in North Carolina. In 1978, she preached in her hometown of Durham, North Carolina, and on Mother's Day at St. Philip's Episcopal Church, where her mother and grandparents had attended in the 19th century. Ultimately, in July of 1985, the world lost Polly Murray to pancreatic cancer. Hmm. I feel reverent (laughs) (laughs) hearing all of that, and I can't believe that all of that was just one person's life. Like, I, I, it's just stunning to consider everything that she did, every barrier she broke, and how hard she worked in just one lifetime, how much she accomplished. It's just overwhelming to me. It was a lot. Yeah. I mean, and so groundbreaking. Even preaching in the 70s. So that was 20 years before I even saw a Black woman minister. Right. She did that. Right. Amazing. And again, like our in her 60s, at the end of her life, she just did not let up. I mean, it's just incredible. Wow. Thanks, Rochelle. Okay. One last piece that it's important to understand before we actually start quoting the text is Title VII itself. And I'm going to attempt to explain it. But Rochelle, since you're the lawyer, then just jump in if I get stuff wrong. Okay. Okay. So the Civil Rights Act of 1964, enacted on July 2nd, 1964, is a landmark civil rights and labor law that outlaws discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, national origin, and then later sexual orientation. It prohibits unequal application of voter registration requirements, um, racial segregation in schools, and public accommodations and employment discrimination. Interestingly, there had already been a Civil Rights Act of 1875, but in 1883, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Congress didn't have the power to to prohibit discrimination in the private sector. So that stripped the original Civil Rights Act of most of its power. And that just shows, I mean, there are always tensions between individual rights, states' rights, government mandates of morality, and the Civil Rights Act illustrates that tension kind of on the biggest possible scale, because in 1883, they basically were saying that it wasn't their right to interfere with the private sector, so with personal matters. So after 1883, there were various societal shifts like the New Deal in the 1930s that caused the Supreme Court justices to gradually shift their legal theory to allow for greater government regulation in the private sector. And so that paved the way for the country to be more willing to enact federal measures to overrule individual or state's autonomy. Ever since the Civil War, and especially during the Reconstruction era, some states instituted the practice of segregation in public spaces, including public schools. 
They claimed that this practice did not violate the 14th Amendment, which outlawed slavery and presumably granted equal rights to all U.S. citizens. This doctrine of separate but equal was confirmed in the Plessy versus Ferguson Supreme Court decision of 1896, which allowed state-sponsored segregation. That decision emboldened segregation states during the Jim Crow era. In 1954, Plessy v. Ferguson was overturned by the Supreme Court case Brown v. the Board of Education, and by law, schools were ordered to desegregate. But individual states dragged their feet, at best, some just like outright refused, and many southern states just would not desegregate their schools. So schools were vastly unequal in their resources and their offerings for children. And, of course, buses and hotels and restaurants and lunch counters were all still segregated in violation of the law. And in addition, voter suppression was so widespread and complete that many African-Americans, especially living in rural areas of the Deep South, believed that they did not legally have the right to vote. So in response to this ongoing violation of human rights, civil rights leaders such as Dr. Martin Luther King, Ella Baker, John Lewis, Joanne Robinson, many, many, many others began demonstrations and a direct action campaign that became known as the Civil Rights Movement. So seeing that some states continued in flagrant violation of anti-segregation law, civil rights leaders pressured the new president, John F. Kennedy, and his brother Robert to propose a new Civil Rights Act to end discrimination on the basis of race. So President Kennedy first proposed the bill in 1963 in his report to the American people on civil rights. And Kennedy wanted legislation that would give, quote, all Americans the right to be served in facilities which are open to the public, hotels, restaurants, theaters, retail stores and similar establishments, as well as greater protection for the right to vote, end quote. Kennedy delivered this speech in the aftermath of the Birmingham campaign and the growing number of demonstrations and protests for racial justice throughout the southern United States. Kennedy was moved to action following the elevated racial tensions and the wave of African-American protests in the spring of 1963. And it was said in a New York Times article at the time, actually, that if, if Congress failed to pass President Kennedy's civil rights bill, the country would face another civil war. As we all know, President Kennedy was assassinated in November of 1963, and President Lyndon B. Johnson took over. And under pressure from civil rights leaders such as Dr. King and many others, he did push the bill forward. So despite huge opposition in Congress, the Civil Rights Act was finally enacted on July 2nd, 1964. So hooray, right? Finally, <laughs> like it's a huge deal. It's huge progress. But now we've arrived at our document today because as many women's rights groups noticed, they said this, quote, the prohibition against discrimination based on sex was added to Title VII at the last minute on the floor of the House of Representatives. The bill quickly passed as amended, but we're left with little legislative history to guide us in interpreting the act's prohibition against discrimination based on sex. Okay. So with all of that as background, let's dive in and share a couple of passages from this article on Title VII. And um, 
I'm going to share the first one, and then I have some questions for you, Rochelle. So I'll just start with a quote. Quote, the genius of the American Constitution is its capacity through judicial interpretation for growth and adaptation to changing conditions and human values. We think that sex discrimination can be better understood if compared with race discrimination, and that recognition of the similarities of the two problems can be helpful in improving and clarifying the legal status of women. Discriminatory attitudes toward women are strikingly parallel to those regarding Negroes. Women have experienced both subtle and explicit forms of discrimination comparable to the inequalities imposed upon minorities. The myths essentially deny a particular group equality of opportunity and then assert that because that group has not achieved as much as the groups enjoying complete freedom of opportunity, it is obviously inferior and can never do as well. End quote. I feel, I mean, for me, I felt almost a little bit uncomfortable, even with this document, Jane Crow and the Law, where they say, like, let's compare the plight of women to the plight of African-Americans only because, and not to say it like it's Polly Murray writing it. So that's great. I don't question that at all. But what my fear is, is that I fear that maybe some privileged white women may make the same mistake that privileged white women keep making and that readers might read it and think that like, oh, all women universally are as oppressed as racial minority men and women have been in this country. And so I I did just feel a little bit of like trepidation with that. So how do you view that comparison? Did that make you uncomfortable at all? Or what did you think about it? Um, it is a difficult one indeed. Uh, I view the comparison as not that, um, not a comparison or contrast at all. It, it cannot be either or. We are both and in our current times, or we are moving backward. Mm. This is a really difficult space, but it's an example for me. And as I raise both a young black man and a young black woman in this society, that policies are not a zero sum game. Underrepresented folks typically aren't at the center of power, nor with seats at many decision-making tables. One person's gain isn't equivalent to another person's loss. Right now, we all need to remember that the net change in power or benefits isn't zero. Both Black men and all women have lacked representation throughout American history. So starting to fall into traps of false dichotomies that pit us against each other is futile. Okay, so what were some passages that stood out to you from this document, Rochelle? Um, there were a couple. Um, the, the first was uh, this quote. The assumption that financial support of a family by the husband, father, is a gift from the male sex to the female sex, and in return, the male is entitled to preference in the outside world, is all too common. Underlying this assumption is the unwillingness to acknowledge any value for childcare and homemaking because they have not been ascribed a dollar value. End quote. This really stood out to me because 
there are remnants of these assumptions that still ripple throughout cases that we see now, class actions on unequal pay, discrimination in hiring or promotion of women throughout all industries in the US. So the ability for people to make assumptions that a male peer is more deserving of a sizable bonus or take into consideration if a man is the quote head of a household has had such underlying impact. Part of my work today is managing a course called unbiasing Hmm. in hiring and promotion processes. And the reason we're still educating folks around this and doing reminder booster courses around it is because it's been such an underlying part. So to see that written in words and that to read, you know, these giants, famous first mm-hmm. of women and feminist literature that was making reference to what we are still trying to mm-hmm. make sure people unlearn today really was just a passage that I thought, wow, I'm, it's so powerful when you're allowed to make decades long, centuries long assumptions into law, into policies, and to be very cognizant that this has been just a few years, if you compare it with the centuries that those assumptions were permitted, that for the past 30, nearly 40, we're just starting to unlearn, to unthink this way. Hmm. Okay, well, that brings us to the end of our discussion today. So I just want to thank you again, Rochelle. This has been such um, a joy to have a reason to to chat with you about these um, really important issues. I so appreciate your perspective and so appreciate you spending the time with me today. So thank you thank so much you. for being here. And thank you, really. Thanks for having me. <laughs>